in his novel, My Son is a Splendid Driver, William Ng tells the story of a most respectable 62-year-old woman who has, to her complete consternation, caught an intimately transmitted disease from her husband, who was a traveling salesman and did something he should not have. She informs her son of the disease when he comes for a visit. She says, Your father has given me a disease that I do not have the courage to name. So the mother is completely collapsed and ashamed. And her son reflects on this in the story as he describes sitting on the front porch with his mother. Every morning on the front porch, we would see Mrs. Holt leave her house and start for the Catholic Church on her way to Mass. She doesn't miss a day, Mother observed. There was a dedication about the woman that always gave us pause. I wish I had a God to pray to now, Mother sometimes said, but I don't seem able to find Him. Mother had stopped going to church. Church isn't the place to go with your troubles. Church is just the place to go when you're feeling good and have a new hat to wear. There was a little bitterness in what she said, a little self-pity, but there was also truth. Our minister would have been the last person in the world she could have talked to, to have lifted the curse she felt upon her and save her from feeling damned. She would have embarrassed the man into speechlessness had she gone to him with her story. He would have been unable to look at her or my father without coloring. Most of our morality, I was beginning to think, was based on a refusal to recognize sin. Our entire religious heritage, it seemed to me, was one of refusal to deal with it. And that's the problem with the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They had a disease that they did not want to name. Sin. They just couldn't come to grips with how sinful they were. It was much easier, and it's easier for us too, right, to point the finger at others. They based their entire morality on a refusal to recognize sin in their own lives. Their whole religious heritage was one of a refusal to own up to their own sin. And that's what we'll see in Mark's gospel today, because Jesus is going to utterly infuriate them. I love that about Jesus. If you think that the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders were angry when Jesus offered forgiveness to and then healed a paralytic like we saw last week, wait until you see how they react when Jesus starts hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. It's going to drive them nuts, and I love it. Sadly, what the Pharisees hated was grace. They hated what they should have loved, grace. They wanted to earn God's grace, and they really believed that they could. And they wanted everyone else to earn it too. And in their eyes, nobody else could earn it. Only they could earn it. How convenient. Why did the Pharisees hate Jesus hanging out with social outcasts? Because the Pharisees hated grace. Why? Why did they hate grace? Because grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give 
in return. Grace is the overwhelming love of God that seeks you out when you have absolutely nothing to give in return except for your own sin. And that's what we see in our passage today. Jesus will seek out people who absolutely have nothing to give in return. So look at Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So as we dive into this very familiar passage, we must understand that the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day had totally botched their calling. They were to lead the nation of Israel in worship, which then led the nation of Israel out in mission to the nations around the world. The Old Old Testament is clear that the the nation of Israel was to be a light to the rest of the nations. It was a come and see religion under the Old Covenant. But now that Jesus has come, it's a go and tell. But then it was a, a come and see. But Israel wasn't interested in sending out any invitations to the pagan nations and countries around them. They wanted to separate from them. And that's exactly why the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit indwelt believers in the Old Testament. Why was there a fresh wind of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost? It was to empower the gospel, to empower these Jewish believers to go out to the nations that they absolutely despised. To empower the gospel to go to the nations because the nation of Israel had lost sight of their calling. The nation of Israel had lost sight of the fact that they were a missionary society meant to call the nations to come and see how good God is, to come and see how good Yahweh and his laws are. And the proof that the nation had veered off tracks is how the Pharisees, the religious leaders, reacted when they saw Jesus eating pizza with sinners and tax collectors. The religious leaders of the day were supposed, to be, were supposed to be leading the nation in calling the nations to Yahweh. But they weren't. Instead of looking at Jesus and saying, look what he's doing. He's building relationships with sinners and tax collectors. He's probably telling them about Yahweh and his great love for his creation. Instead, they were saying, what in the world does he think he is doing by associating with the world Those people are bad. Those people are sinners. Doesn't he know that? But Jesus knew his Old Testament. He knew it was full of passages that declared God's love for the nations. And that's why Jesus invited all of these sinners into his house for lunch. Actually, it's it's Levi. Levi threw the party and invited Jesus and all these uh, riffraff into his house for lunch. And Jesus tells the Pharisees in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. 
The great physician came to heal the wound of sinners, and he was giving a clinic, pun intended, on how to be the people of God. So understand this, Grace. The church is to be a hospital for sinners. We are to be a magnet for the messiest kind of sinners that this city can produce. We want to be a church that when you blow it, this is the place that you come to. We want to be a church that when people blow it and totally make a mess of their lives, they think, that's where I need to go. Imagine that. Imagine someone totally wrecks their life and they think, go to a bar or go to the church on the roundabout. I've heard that the people there are so kind and so caring and loving and gentle. I think I'll go there because they take their first name seriously. They have what I need grace. Wouldn't that be great? The mother in William Ng's story was misguided. She said, church isn't the place to go with your troubles. Church is just the place to go when you're feeling good and have a new hat to wear. No, mother, you're wrong. You have it backwards. Church is the place to go with your troubles. This is not the place to come because you're feeling good or you have a new hat to wear. I mean, Yes, if you're wrapped up in your identity and you are a slave to your appearance, then yes, come to church with your new hat and show it off. Jesus even loves people who are obsessed with their looks. Jesus even loves people who are in love with themselves. And Jesus loves people who just go to church because they're feeling good. Jesus will have them too. And so will we. We'll have any sinner who wants to come. The doors are wide open here, just like the arms of Jesus. We want to be a church that when people ruin their lives, this is the first place they want to come. We want to be a church that when people absolutely make a mess of their lives, this is the very first place that they want to come to. We don't want to be like the minister in William Ng's novel. The son said, our minister would have been the last person in the world she could have talked to, to have lifted the curse she felt upon her and save her from feeling damned. She would have embarrassed the man into speechlessness had she gone to him with her story. He would have been unable to look at her or my father without coloring. We want to be a church. We want to be people, Christians, disciples, who lift the curse that people feel. We want to be a place where people come and share the awful details of their lives, the diseases that they can't name, and not look away from them, but be able to look them in the eye and tell them that they are loved and that they can be forgiven and they can be transformed and set free from shame and guilt. That's what I want for us. I want us to become more like Jesus, to reach out and care for, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 42, to reach out and care for the the flickering, smoldering wicks and, and the bruised reeds. But I wonder sometimes how we do as a church in this regard. How do we treat the broken and the ignorant and the wayward? Are we gentle with them or are we self righteous? Do we beat them up with law or do we offer them grace? I hope we have lots of grace to give the hurting, and I think we do. I think we do. I think we do offer hope and grace to people because when they come here, we're just connecting them with Jesus. 
Ray Cortez, a Presbyterian pastor, said this about the church he pastors. At our church, we measure fidelity to Jesus by whether proud religious people resist our message and humble, broken people are drawn to it. I couldn't agree more. And I can tell you that it's true of grace, too. We measure fidelity to Jesus here at this church by whether proud religious people resist our message and humble, broken people are drawn to it. That's what church is about. Church is to be a place where the broken and hurting of this world are not beat over their heads, but find healing for their hearts. I mean, call me crazy, but it seems like I heard some guy say this once. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Where did I read that? Oh yeah, it's in verse 17. And that's exactly why tax collectors and sinners are hanging out with Jesus. Mark tells us in verse 15 that Jesus had quite the following. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Jesus just didn't have nice, cleaned-up, law-abiding Jewish people following him. It was the down-and-out, the social outcasts who were flocking to him, and it was driving the religious folks nuts. Jesus went around driving all the proud religious folks nuts because he was drawn to the broken and the needy. Jesus came for the sick, the bruised, the broken, the weak, the despised, the rejects. And that's whom every church should be drawing. Listen to this welcome message from a church to its community that I've adopted as our own. We extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, filthy rich, dirt poor, y no habla inglés. We extend a special welcome to those who are crying newborns, skinny as a rail, or could afford to lose a few pounds. We welcome you if you can sing like Andrea Bocelli, or like our pastor, who can't carry a note in a bucket. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woke up, or just got out of jail. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60 but not grown up yet, and to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome soccer moms, NASCAR dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or are still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems or you're down in the dumps or if you don't like organized religion. We've been there too. If you blew all your offering money at the dog track, you're welcome here. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, or both. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now or had religion shoved down your throat as a kid or got lost in traffic and wound up here by mistake. We welcome tourists, seekers, doubters, bleeding hearts, and you. I can get behind that welcome. And I think Jesus would too. Come to Jesus and be loved and forgiven and transformed and conformed to his image and come be a part of the greatest story that's ever been told that God is redeeming his world, redeeming his creation, that he is making all things new. Come and join Jesus in this great adventure. That's the message of grace that we want preached and heralded from this pulpit and from our mouths to the people in our city. We want the people in our city and the people on the central coast to know that grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Nothing to give but your sin, your sickness, 
your rebellion, your stubbornness, your evil ways, your jealousy, your bitterness, your problems, your mess. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. And when you preach the free grace of Jesus, guess what? It draws in humble, broken people. It draws in the ignorant, the wayward, the sick, the broken, the bruised, the weak, the despised, the rejects, and it drives the proud religious folks nuts. And it drives them away too. I gotta be honest, proud religious people drive me nuts. But sadly, what proud religious people need most is the gospel. And sometimes they leave a church because that church preaches on the very thing that they need, the gospel, the good news of the free grace of God. What do prideful, self-righteous people need? They need the gospel. Here are a few reasons why self-righteous people drive me nuts. Most of you know that we live in the Parsonage, that house on the property just right over there across the parking lot. And not long after we moved here to Santa Maria... We had people putting evangelistic tracks under the windshield wipers of our van. We would come home on Wednesday nights and find tracks stuck under the windshield wipers of our vans. How? These, these, these tracks that said, how to become a Christian. You know, repent and be saved. How self-righteous do you have to be to put a tract on a pastor's car in the driveway of the parsonage? Not only that, whoever was doing this, and it went on for several weeks, they stepped up their game. They started taping these bigger tracks to our front door. They were like comic book-sized tracks on how to get saved, how to become a Christian, and they would tape them to our front door. How self-righteous do you have to be to put a comic book-sized track on a pastor's front door? That's why proud, self-righteous people bother me. But there's more. We were at McDonald's once with the kids, and this lady came up and asked. She said, are you the pastor of Grace? And I said, yes. And then she left, and she went out to her car, and she brought back in a book that her pastor had written that was condemning modern churches and modern worship. And she said, I have a gift for you. You should read this. I'm a pastor. I love books. Thanks for the free book. Then I read the book or skimmed it. What she was saying basically was what was in the book that she gave me. She was basically saying, read this. You and your church are a part of the world. Your worship is like Babylon. Your worship and your church is unbiblical. Seriously. That's why proud, self-righteous people drive me nuts. But there's another reason why proud, self-righteous, religious people drive me nuts. And it's this. Sometimes I am a proud, religious person. I'll admit that I'm a recovering Pharisee. I can be a Pharisee toward Pharisees. I can be prideful and look down on people who are prideful and look down on people. I can be a Pharisee toward Pharisees. I'm self-righteous about the self-righteous people who put those tracks on our vans and our front door. Can't you tell? I'm still working through the issue. And when I am that way, I prove that I have not outgrown my need of grace. I need God's unconditional love because I can be a stinker towards Pharisees. 
So yes, if we start preaching the free, lavish, overwhelming love of God for sinners and we take this message to our city, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, we will get dirty looks from self-righteous people. We just hosted a pastor's conference here last week and I had several people say, what, what do you do here? Youth pastor, janitor? No, I'm a senior pastor. Really? Really? I have issues I gotta work through. If we, where was I at? I had somebody come up to me and say, they told me you were the senior pastor here. And I, and I told the, and this guy said, and I told the person, no way. No way. I am so lost in my notes. I have issues. Pray for me. If we start preaching the free, lavish, overwhelming love of God for sinners, and we take this message to our city, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, we will get dirty looks from self-righteous people. They will talk behind our backs. And they'll ask, like they did Jesus in verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They'll hand us gospel tracts hoping that we get converted. But we'll be doing what Jesus did. So I'm okay with that. How about you? If we start preaching the free, lavish, overwhelming love of God for sinners, and we take this message to our sitting, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, we'll start attracting some of the messiest sinners around. And that seems to be exactly how Jesus did his ministry. Jesus preached the overwhelming love of God for sinners. He preached God's kindness, and it led sinners to repent. They wanted to hang out with Jesus. That's why Levi, in our passage, responded to the call of Jesus. Levi was a turncoat. He was a Jewish man working for Rome, probably for Herod Antipas, who then was relaying that to Rome, working for Rome, taxing his brothers and sisters as they brought in fish from their fishing boats. He had a little booth set up. They came in off the shore with their fish, and he taxed them. Levi was right there to tax them when they came ashore. And then one day, a new rabbi showed up and started preaching the gospel, the good news that God loves sinners. Levi heard Jesus teaching as he was collecting taxes and heard the message of the gospel about God's kindness and love so that when Jesus walked by, Levi responded when Jesus said, follow me. Jesus didn't use the Jedi trick, follow me. He heard the message that Jesus was proclaiming that God loves sinners. And when Jesus said, follow me, he left it all and said, let me throw a party at my house and all my friends are going to come. Levi responded. Levi heard that grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. He had nothing to offer Jesus. And grace sought him out that day by the seashore. And he left it all behind to go be with Jesus. Have you ever thought about why Levi and all these rogues are hanging out with Jesus? Why did sinners want to hang out with Jesus? Was it because he carried around a 10-pound Bible and hit them over the head with it? Was it because he always acted holier than thou? Was it because he was uptight and never laughed? No. Sinners were drawn to him because he cared, because he was compassionate, because he was kind, because he didn't condemn. He saved his harshest, most condemning words for whom? The religious people, the scribes, the Pharisees. Think about this. Who wanted to be around Jesus? Sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, outcasts, misfits, the riffraff, the down and out, people who had made a total mess of their lives. 
Jesus knew that the church was to be a hospital for weary, beat-up sinners. That's who Jesus came for, and they and you and me are all welcome. We're welcome at the table with Jesus to share a meal with Jesus, to laugh with Jesus as we tell stories together, to enjoy fellowship with him in spite of our past. But they and you and I have to admit our need. That's how you get in the door to see Jesus. And that's a stumbling block for the self-righteous. It's a stumbling block for the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious leaders in Jesus' day because they thought they were healthy. They didn't need a physician. They were righteous. They didn't need Jesus. They didn't need a Savior. They were good. They kept the law. But that's who Jesus came for. He came for people who don't have their act together. He came for people who are sick, sick with sin, And sick with self-righteousness. He came for people who get a new hat and they stare at themselves in the mirror and they think, wow, you look good, girl. He came for people who are obsessed with themselves and obsessed with their looks. The Pharisees had lost sight of the gospel and here's the proof. They were more focused on the sins of others. And that is a sure sign that you have lost sight of the gospel. When the sins of others bother us more than our own. Let me say that again. A sure sign that you have lost sight of the gospel is when the sins of others bother you more than your own. That's the Pharisees. And that's been me plenty of times in my life. I am a recovering Pharisee. Sometimes other people's sin bothers me more than my own. Let me rephrase that. Every single day, other people's sin bothers me more than my own. Sometimes I can just focus with like a laser-like tenacity on the sins and failures and shortcomings of others. Anybody else struggle with this? Any other recovering Pharisees out there? There's still enough of a Pharisee in me, even though I readily admit that I'm a sinner. But here's why self-righteousness is deadly. Self-righteousness makes you blind to yourself, but critical of others. Self-righteousness makes you blind to yourself, but very critical of other people. But grace causes you to be honest with yourselves and forgiving of others. And that's what we need more of, more grace, more forgiveness. Self-righteousness makes you blind to yourself, and critical of other people. If you're being critical of someone, you're probably being self-righteous. Let me say that again. If you're being critical of someone in your life, this church, your workplace, your neighborhood, your family, if you're being critical of someone, you're probably being self-righteous. Do it the next time you start to get critical about something and tell yourself you're being self-righteous. It stings, but it's what we need. See, Pharisees feel superior to others. That's what they do. And I was stopped in my tracks this week as I read the following sentence from one of my heroes, Jack Miller. He said this, We recovering Pharisees often find that in our minds we have collected albums full of dark snapshots of other people. Okay, let me read it again slowly. Think about what he's saying. We recovering Pharisees often find that in our minds... We have collected albums full of dark snapshots 
of other people. Isn't that good? Doesn't that sting? How many of you right now in your minds have photo albums full of dark snapshots of other people? How many of you have photo albums full of bitterness towards others or anger or hatred or jealousies or insecurities? How many of you have photo albums in your minds of all the bad feelings that you have towards some people? It's like the, you know, an old Kodak camera. You take the picture, zzz, prints out, and you just write anger on it. And you put it in, in your photo album with the picture of that person that you're angry with, and you keep it there. Take another picture of this person. Shh, I'm jealous of them. And you put it in your photo album, and we've got these photo albums that we, that we just flip through and rehearse these, the pain and the anger and the hurt and the jealousy and the insecurity and the criticism. I think we're all like that. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for that. Jesus can set us free from those enslaving photo albums in our minds that we return to over and over again as we rehearse and nurse our wounds. There's healing for that. The great physician came to heal that. Let's throw away those photo albums full of dark snapshots of other people and let's live free. Let's not stay in the bondage of jealousy and anger and bitterness anymore. That's what the Pharisees were doing towards Jesus. The gospel frees us from seeing ourselves as either the sum total of our failures or the sum total of our successes. For Levi, the tax-collecting turncoat Israelite, his identity was the sum total of his failures. He was a sellout. He folded under pressure and gave in and took a job with the Roman government taxing his brothers to death. He was Uncle Sam for Rome, sticking his dirty fingers into the pockets of his relatives. His identity was the sum total of his failures as an Israelite. He stunk as a card-carrying member of Jewish society. And for the Pharisees and scribes, their identity was wrapped up in their successes. They had PhDs in the Old Testament They were smarter than everyone else and knew their Bibles better than everyone else. They were privileged. They were super spiritual. They had arrived and everyone else needed to step up in their commitment to Yahweh. They bragged about how good they were. Their identity was the sum total of their success. So which of these two groups do you fall in this morning? Where have you placed your identity? In your success? In your failures? Where is your identity really practically, functionally centered? Your success or your failures? The gospel frees us from seeing ourselves as the sum total of our failures or success. As believers, our identity, because we're in union with Christ, is now linked and rooted in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. His perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection. That is our life now. Your identity is not rooted in what you have done, either successes or failures. Christian, your identity is rooted in what Jesus has already done for you. Not what you've done that's bad, not what you've done that's good. Not what you've done at all, not what I've done. It's all wrapped up in what Jesus has already done for us and secured for us. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Paul's all said that. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. 
Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. The cliche definition of grace is unconditional love. It is a true cliche for it is a good description of the thing. Let's go a little further though. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever they may be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves in relation to the receiver, the one who is love, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Grace is one-way love. Grace always goes to the wrong people. Grace always goes to the wrong people. People who don't deserve it and people who have nothing to give in return. That's Jesus over and over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus is always going to the wrong people. Tax collectors, prostitutes, half-breed Samaritans, and he doesn't bring a scorecard with him. Isn't that good news? Jesus doesn't show up with a scorecard. No weights and no measures. He just shows up and he loves the broken. That's grace. It really is amazing, isn't it? R.C. Sproul said, If God were not so holy and we were not so sinful, perhaps we could get along. That's why we need Jesus. That's the only way that a holy God and sinful people can get along. That's why we need the cross. That's why we need grace. And Jesus made it possible for sinners, for tax collectors, for prostitutes to be made right with God. It's grace. Pure, unadulterated, 200 proof grace. And this is the message that we want to take to our city. We want to share the good news of Jesus. And when you take this good news to your friends and neighbors, co-workers, when you share the gospel, you'll hear things like this. The church is full of hypocrites, right? The church is full of hypocrites. And you know what you tell them when they tell you that the church is full of hypocrites? Tell them this. No, it's not full. There's room for more. Want to join us? Let's let our worship, which I believe is Christ-centered. I believe our worship here is Christ-centered. Let's let our worship lead us to mission. Listen, we are, we are reach, as a church, we are reaching our city in a lot of ways. We have a lot of ministries that are involved in outreach and reaching our city. city. So let me encourage you to get involved. The Central Coast Rescue Mission is one way that you can do that. Child Evangelism Fellowship or the Good News Club is one way. Awana, because we have the city coming to us. CareNet Pregnancy and Resource Center. Word of Hope Ministries with Biblical Counseling. If you don't know how to get involved, just ask. There's lots of things that we're doing collectively as a church, but we can't go to your workplace and work for you and share the gospel with your coworker. That's why God made you. That's why you're working where you're working. Each of us individually are called to do the work as well. We're individually tasked with taking this good news to our homes and neighborhoods and workplaces. So let me ask you this. Who are you praying for in 2018? Who in your life are you praying, God, open their eyes. May they see Jesus as the most beautiful thing in the world. May they see him as the good shepherd who's caring and kind and merciful and forgiving. Is it someone you work with? 
someone in your neighborhood, someone in your family. Maybe it's the barista where you get your coffee. Maybe it's the cashier at the grocery store. Who are you praying for in 2018 and saying, God, give me opportunities to tell them about you? There are people on the Central Coast right now who are thinking, like the mother in William Ng's story, they're thinking, I wish I had a God to pray to now, but I don't seem able to find him. And that's where you come in. And that's where I come in, to go tell them about Jesus. We gotta go tell them about, you know, we are the number two spot in America of unchurched people. The Central Coast is of people, the number two spot in America of people who have never been to church one time. They're probably not gonna come to your, accept your invitation to come to church. Maybe they will. We gotta go tell them about Jesus. Invite them to church, they may say no, but we gotta go out there If you're struggling for the right words to get a conversation started with someone, I found what Steve Brown said to be very helpful. He said this, let me ask you something. Do you know a single pagan who stayed away from Christ because a Christian did not act as holy and as sanctified as he or she ought to have acted? I know they will say we're hypocrites, but usually that is just a smokescreen. The truth is, what repeatedly kills our witness is pretense, not freedom. It would be so refreshing to say to our unbelieving friends, I really mess up sometimes, but let me tell you something really good. God is still quite fond of me. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? If we were that honest, the world would beat a path to our door. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and maybe you think the church is full of hypocrites, let me tell you, no, it's not. There's room for more. Want to join us? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, let me tell you as the pastor of this church, I really mess up sometimes. But let me tell you something really good. God is still quite fond of me. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? You can belong to him. If you fess up to your sin, you admit your rebellion, your sinfulness, that you want to be king, that you live like you're the king. If you admit that, turn away from that and turn to Jesus with the open, empty hands of faith, then he will be quite fond of you. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? Let's pray. Father, it is great that we belong to you. I just read it in Philippians 3 this morning. It says that Jesus has made us his own. That's such good news that we belong to you. That was our catechism question last week. What is our only hope in life and death that we belong to you, body and soul? What comfort and joy that brings. I pray we as a church would let that get down into the nooks and crannies of our hearts so that we would go and tell people that even though we mess up, you're still quite fond of us. And wouldn't it be great if they belong to a God like you? Help us to do that. Open doors for us to reach our city and to reach the central coast for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.